When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to Geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. Blog Talk Radio. Thank you very much, Chuck Morse, Blog Talk Radio, veteran talk show host. Um, I'm awaiting my guest, who is Mark Wortman. He's an independent historian and award-winning freelance journalist. He's the author of two books, previous books, from the, what I'm talking about today. The Millionaire's Unit, the Aristocratic Flyboys Who Fought the Great War and Invented American Air Power, and The Bonfire, The Siege and Burning of Atlanta, his book um, is uh, 1941, Fighting the Shadow War, a Divided America in a World at War. Uh, Mark will hopefully be calling in shortly, doing a blog talk radio, has its difficulties, but it keeps my hand in radio as I, um, you know, continue to um, develop my, um, my sort of a platform, if you will, in media. And just since since I'm on that topic briefly, before we get to the content of the book, I recently discovered this amazing technology on Facebook, which allows me to broadcast live and streamed um, right right from a Facebook page, a, a, a business page you set up as part of your Facebook account. And uh, you can see me, you can hear me, and I'm doing it as I drive Uber. I drive Uber in Boston. It's one of my many jobs. I also write life and health insurance policies. And uh, it's great fun. I call it the Boston Uberman. And I I basically do brief segments in between my Uber clients. So uh, you can check that out on Facebook. It's, uh, I'm having a great time doing that. Anyway, uh, Mark Wortman is with us. And Mark is the author, as mentioned previously, of 1941, Fighting in the Shadow War, A Divided America in a World at War. Mark, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Thank you, Chuck. Good to be here. Mark, your book deals with a very interesting year, and that was after World War II had been launched by the Nazis and by the Soviets when they marched in and divided up Poland in September of 1939. Uh, bringing yep. Europe into war, bringing up Britain and France in because they had signed a uh, a treaty with England, with Poland, agreeing to go to war if Poland had been attacked. But the United States was not in it yet. And, in fact, we would not get in it until the end of 1941, the date which will live in infamy, that being December 7th, when the, uh, the Imperial Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. So there was a lot going on in the country in those years. And I think you do a very good job of illustrating it, and I appreciate your book. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that uh, I had always been concerned about why the U.S. allowed Hitler to progress for so long, uh, why the U.S. didn't come in uh, with military force in response to uh, the conquests in Europe, and uh, why, uh, as a, um, uh, I'm of Jewish background, uh, 
and was always aware that both uh, some members of my family were killed in the Holocaust and others who were refugees uh, were not permitted to come into the country. You know, why the U.S. did not, uh, when news was already uh, filtering back about atrocities, why the U.S. didn't, uh, you know, raise at least the moral flag. And Mm -hmm. so... uh, that led me down that path into that in that two-plus-year period when the U.S. Uh, became the arsenal of democracy, but uh, it was explicitly not the army of democracy. You know, it's kind of a separate topic, but um, I'm also Jewish, and I've, I've been interested in the, uh, the phenomena of the Evian Conference, which was held in uh, 1940, I believe. And that basically led by the United States delegation in France, it was just before the invasion of France, where we basically put a ban on any Jewish emigration, not only into the United States, but into other Western nations. I mean, we uh, it was shortly after that that the United States uh, told the Cuban government to turn back a shipload of Jewish refugees uh, because mm-hmm. they, they weren't allowed to land. They ended up having to go back to Nazi Germany. So, you know, there was a, yeah. there was a strange agreement. Louis. That's mm-hmm. right. It was a strange agreement mm-hmm. on the part of the Western democracies to uh, to ban any Jewish immigration, including to Palestine. Uh, one of the few mm-hmm. countries that actually did some was Great Britain with the Kinder uh, transport. But other than yep. that, it was uh, it was just a shutdown of uh, of, of ban- a ban of it, and there was no discussion of it. Franklin Roosevelt never discussed it publicly until the end of the war. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just a, a separate topic. But but the issue at hand mm-hmm. in your book is. 1941, why is it that we didn't get in the war sooner? There was a major peace movement in the United States, um, which Mm -hmm. I learned a lot about from reading your book. And it was anti-war. It did not want to get in. It was made up. I mean, the the, the big figures in it were Charles Lindbergh, who, based on some of the chilling things that he said that you recounted in your book, clearly was an anti-Semite, but Mm -hmm. involved with this very bizarre Jewish conspiracy theories. But uh, yeah. but I think it's also, is it not true that this peace movement was much broader than that? It included people on the left, right, center. And generally, Americans did not want to intervene in, in this foreign war. Yeah, yeah. At, at this time in, uh, this, uh, in 1941, right around now, there was a, a Gallup poll taken that found that... Uh, uh, that 75% of the respondents said that if Great Britain fell, and at this point Great Britain was fighting on effectively alone against the Nazis uh, and had gone through the Blitz, uh, its convoys were under attack, uh, its, which were the uh, essential lifeline to uh, supplying a an island nation, that if Great Britain fell, Americans by 75% felt that this would represent a serious danger to the United States. And that same poll found that more than 80% said that even at the risk of Great Britain falling, that Americans should not enter the war. Mm -hmm. So there was a very broad sentiment in the country. And as you said, it was was, uh, left, right, and center uh, on the left, 
uh, right up until June 22, 1941, when the uh, Germans invaded the Soviet Union. Uh, the Communist Party was uh, strongly against American intervention in what it considered to be an imperialist war. And of course, as soon as uh, as soon as Hitler invaded the Soviet Union, the Communist Party did a uh, 180 degree turn and said, uh, "This is our war. We need to come right away hmm. to the aid of of the Allies." Um, on the far right, there were people like Charles Lindbergh, who, uh, as you mentioned, was uh, strongly anti-Semitic. Um, although many of his biographers and people who study him don't don't actually perceive him that way. But I spent time looking at his uh, private diaries from the period that are kept at Yale University where his papers are. And he made in those diaries statement after statement about Jews that he saw as uh, being an insidious force, hard to ferret out, but behind the push Mm. uh, for the nation to go to war. Um, and that he blamed for sabotaging his events, and and so and claimed that they had uh, outsized ownership and influence in the media, which uh, all studies show that in fact, other than ownership of the New York Times at that time, and um, and uh, the Hollywood movie studios, you know, really had no significant ownership role in in the media. Mm-hmm. And then you had people in this liberal center. Um, Theodore Roosevelt Jr. figures importantly in my book. Uh, Mm -hmm. Ted Roosevelt, you know, he was actually involved in ecumenical groups. He was... uh, uh, very active in in all kinds of civil rights movements, um, and very much opposed to uh, what he saw as anti-Semitism within the uh, anti-war movement. Um, but he was very much an isolationist. He was the son of President uh, Teddy Roosevelt. He was himself a hero in World War One. His knee had been badly shot up. Um, and uh, he got involved with America First, the organization that uh, Charles Lindbergh became the chief spokesperson for, um, mm-hmm. as yep. did his, as did some of his siblings. You know, and part of that was they just simply hated FDR. They hated yeah, Franklin Roosevelt. You show a real yeah. hatred between the two branches of the Roosevelts, the the Oyster Bay Roosevelts and the uh, and FDR's Roosevelts, the High Park, and. Uh, yeah. Boy, it was like personal. It was it was just a, a nasty uh, breakdown. Uh, you know, yeah. you, uh, you know, we should mention that uh, that I think American Jews were no more pro-war than than anyone else. In fact, uh, they they were just as much a part of the peace movement as others. And that uh, the people that were driving toward the war, and this is the one area where, while Lindbergh was certainly an anti-Semite and he had it wrong with Jewish conspiracies. It did seem to be something that was the purview of of an elite group, um, a, a kind of the top group of people, and, and I don't even necessarily think FDR was part of that. Um, yeah. But they, they were pushing for war on the inside. FDR's policy, on the other hand, was one that would eventually um, be described in 1948 against the Soviet Union as containment, maybe with a little mm-hmm. extra mustard on it. You know, he wanted to contain the Nazi expansion and aggression without necessarily entering into a shooting war. I mean, he wanted to, he was very good at defining the nature of the enemy as evil and contrasting it with our society, which he 
identified as superior, did a very good job with that, in the same way that mm-hmm. Reagan did with uh, the Soviet Union. And I wonder, looking back at this, because I've always taken a conventional view that we should absolutely have gotten it right away, perhaps that policy would have been the more effective policy in terms, it may not have been as quick, but it would have saved a lot of American lives if we had just contained the Nazis and allowed them eventually to implode on their own rock, like we did with the Soviets 30 years later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I think, well, first let's, let's step back for a minute and actually look at at what FDR was doing. Cause I think, I think you sort of overstate his, um, his unwillingness to actually go to war. I think FDR, uh, acted in what he perceived to be the national interest, and also that he was uh, a politician with his antenna up, and he mm. understood that the American people weren't ready for war. Um, I think that he made uh, that he could have, as Henry Stimson, his Secretary of War, uh, said, you know, he could have had taken much more forceful executive leadership to. Uh, bring the Americans uh, into the war. But he actually, throughout 1941, uh, he was in the process of moving American forces more and more towards a, uh, towards a footing that can only be said to be uh, towards uh, confronting Hitler's forces. I mean, he was moving the, the most powerful portion of the U.S. military, which was the Navy, step by step uh, to the east in the Atlantic Ocean until finally in July 1941, we occupied Iceland and right. we set up patrols in the right in the midst of the uh, declared German combat zone. We had, uh, we had destroyers sailing out there. They were not... Uh, uh, we were still neutral, and they were still what was officially called the neutrality patrol, but uh, they were uh, looking for for warships, and they were announcing their presence, and American aircraft were patrolling uh, within uh, a few hundred miles of the U.K. So uh, inevitably, he understood that inevitably there were going to be confrontations between U.S. warships and German U-boats, and in certain respects, he was using the United States Navy as bait to create mm. a series of of um, military, violent military encounters that would, he hoped, uh, lead the American people to uh, push him into war. You know, right. he, was he was unwilling to go to war. And, well, he was looking for an incident to create. Of, yeah. uh, to create a. a you know, a war, uh, a willingness to go to war. Uh, and, and, you know, to do so, he was basically saying that our defense lines extend all the way almost to the shores of Great Britain. Um, and he was also sending American forces to uh, fly with the, uh, the RAF to be trained in, in combat piloting. And as it turned out, they actually ended up being relief pilot, pilots for the RAF. It was an American pilot who spotted the Bismarck and almost got blown right. out of the sky for it. Um, so really, we can't say that Roosevelt wasn't attempting to lead the country to war. But as he said at one point, it's terrible 
to uh, to think you're leading and then look back over your shoulder and find that, uh, that nobody's following you. And so he understood that uh, the American people needed something, uh, essentially a huge spark, if they were going to go to that explosive level of total war that it would take to defeat Nazi Germany. Now, it was oh, a shock. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, yeah, I think what I you're saying is absolutely true. I mean, he wanted to. He he needed to get support, popular support, to go to war. He was at, he was spoiling for war, uh, probably as far back as uh, the very beginning. Um, hmm. Even if you take a look at the history during World War One, when he was under Secretary of the, of the Navy uh, under Wilson, he was spoiling for war. Then, I mean, he actually, when the Secretary of the Navy was on vacation, he did several took several maneuvers that would put America in harm's way, uh, the Navy, so that there could be an incident. I mean, this was, um, he, he was part of, of, an, of a movement that wanted to involve the United States in a world war. The, the question I have, and what I'm looking at, and we can all look in retrospect, was, was mm-hmm. this really something that would have been necessary ultimately to, to defeat the Nazis? And I think that you have in your book, you say that Hitler was trying to avoid any confrontation with the United States. He was involved mm-hmm. in a death struggle with the Soviet Union, and I think that uh, it was none other than Senator Harry Truman, I think, who expressed the American sentiment at the time when he said that let these two evil empires, these two behemoths, these two socialistic mm-hmm. entities, you know, these two progressive experiments or whatever, let them duke <laughs> it out and they'll basically exhaust each other. I mean, in a sense, uh, a policy of containment. I mean, I think Roosevelt was right to support the British and to basically take over in Iceland because that's our perimeter of defense, but to actually have instigated the hot war and also with Japan too, I mean, to cut off their, their trade supplies to the degree that they were backed into a corner and ended up occupying Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. It was it was a policy that was instigating war, and I'm not sure in retrospect it was necessary to defeat these socialistic monsters. Well, I think that um, there, it's that's a that's a, a retrospect uh, question, a what if question. One of the things that we that we have to be very aware of was that in Washington, in London, and certainly in Berlin, the perception was that the Soviet Union wouldn't last two months after the Nazi invasion. Of of the Soviet Union, now right. uh, Hit and Hitler's view of this was that once he had uh, uh, gotten rid of Stalin and uh, captured the uh, the breadbasket of Ukraine, uh, which was of course a big part of his Lebensraum his, uh, intentions, this need to uh, find territory for the the Aryan people to expand into and uh, to pro- provide food for them. Uh, and, uh, you know, while you talk about, well, you know, let, let these two um, horrible uh, uh, empires fight it out, um, in the meanwhile, the, the German intention there, with the Nazi intention, was to uh, murder all of the Jews there, which they essentially did, and then uh, and to enslave the Slavic peoples uh, and work and starve them to death. You know, so mm. this is th- there is no 
we can't, uh, in retrospect, in any kind of humanitarian uh, perspective, simply take this sort of political view that says, well, God, let them, let them beat each other to death um, because, uh, the, you know, the victims of this were millions and millions of people. Um, and, well, well, yeah, but uh, I the think vast majority the of them view, innocents. Yeah. Of course, I'm, and I think the American view, as expressed by Truman, was that both sides were equally evil when it came to those sorts of records. Let's not forget that Lenin had already slaughtered three to four million people before Hitler even joined the Nazi party. I mean, this was, you know, they had set up mm-hmm. a system of uh, concentration camps they called the Gulag, which was imitated by the Nazis. Their Cheka mm-hmm. was imitated by the Nazis when they developed the Gestapo. I mean, their whole system of government was emulated and admired by the Nazis as they set up their model. Well, so I think I Hitler, think Hitler, Hitler took... Very evil. Yeah. You know, both I mean, sides think, were equally you... evil. Yeah, well, I, I don't know whether, I mean, uh, I whether we should get... I mean, I personally believe the Nazis were, were worse because I'm a Jew, and of course, you know, that's... That's an unprecedented event in history, of course, but of course that hadn't happened yet in 1941. Mm-hmm. It was the Vansi Conference, wasn't it, until 1942. But the point mm-hmm. is that they, 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 these two evil empires were, you know, they, they were equally, I think, should have been viewed as enemies of the Western democracies, and perhaps using the Keenan model, which came on later, they could have been isolated and encircled in the same way maybe that we might look today at Islamic terror. You know, these are yeah. systems that, I mean, when I read some of Roosevelt's statements as he describes the Nazis, it reminds me of today, the enemy that we face. I mean, you know, these are en- enemies of America, enemies of the Judeo-Christian uh, civilization. Yeah. Well, you know, I think and we both, have to be... Both of them were. Well, let's, let's be very, very, very careful about making comparisons between a nation-state with, a, uh, with the powers of uh, a great nation state and a uh, 10 million man military force and a large industrial base uh, and a, uh, a long national history uh, that was in the process of expanding and using industrial murder and, uh, and terror at home to uh, create its and reinforce its power. Let's be extremely cautious about comparing that to uh, to the elements of uh, scattered elements that that are largely disorganized, highly in many cases, most cases impoverished uh, uh, members of a of a religious faith who have no. Uh, significant state organization behind them. You know, to compare the one to the other is well, you know, I, to, I to, compare a, uh, to compare a, a hammer to a, yeah. uh, no, to that, a, a fingernail. My, yeah. my comparison yeah, so, is more ideological than it is physical, but I do compare the, um, the, the Nazis and the communists because we should point out that after the war, the Soviet mm-hmm. Union and their allies spearheaded the occupation of about a third of the planet. And so, you know, mm-hmm. we had, you know, they were, you know, you mentioned in the book in a very admirable way the role of Harry Hopkins uh, as an advisor mm-hmm. to the president and how he created a liaison with the British and he played a sort of an insider role in getting 
getting the parties on the same page with regard to uh, eventually going to war. But, mm-hmm. but uh, his record wasn't so great when it came to dealing with the Soviet Union. And um, there were there's information that's been revealed, particularly George Racy Jordan's diary, who worked on the Hopkins, that, that indicate that Hopkins was helping the Soviets get nuclear material in the 1940s. I mean, it's, yeah, uh, I don't, you know, it's uh, kind of a... No, there's, there, there is... Uh, Hopkins was investigated quite thoroughly. Hopkins' telephones were tapped. Uh, mm-hmm. This was... There has never been a shred of evidence that has been brought forward that uh, that proves in any way that he was a Soviet agent. What he was... Okay. And this was quite clear, was somebody who believed that ultimately Hitler had to be defeated. And he went to the Soviet Union at a time in uh, uh, early August of 1941 when the vast majority of people around the world believed the Soviet Union was going to collapse. And while you talk about containing you know, the Soviets, containing the Nazi Germany, the reality was... If the Soviet Union fell, the, that would have given Hitler essentially the keys to the kingdom, and that would have left, made it impossible for Great Britain to stand up to Hitler and the Nazis. And ultimately then, we would have been faced with the potential for uh, Hitler to have control of all of Europe, continental Europe, into uh, the Soviet Union, including its industrial and resources, uh, natural resources, uh, uh, controlling from the uh, southern shores of the Mediterranean all the way to the Arctic Circle. Uh, And at that point, the U.S. would have been truly isolated, and Hitler would have potentially have taken the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force and the U.S., would have been left to fight on alone. And then you would have had the situation in which the Axis would have been invoked, and you, uh, which it was in any case when the, uh, when the uh, Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor, and you would have had the U.S. not just facing a two-front, uh, two-ocean war, but facing it absolutely alone with no hmm. allies at all. You know, in that situation... You know, if you say, well, this would have been uh, potentially a better outcome, well, then I think you're, you're you know, you're whistling, uh, you know, you're whistling in the dark and, and thinking that a flashlight is the sun. Um, well, you is, know, Mark, you uh, make very good points. No, that, uh, you, you make a solid case that uh, a scenario of what might have happened, um, I think that, uh, you know, it's easy to say in hindsight for any of us, but to my way of thinking, both the Nazi and the communist movements were so evil and so anti-human in a way and, mm-hmm. and antithetical to, to basic freedoms that, that individuals enjoy in this country that it would have imploded as it did in the Soviet Union without firing a shot. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. It would have extended itself. I mean, Russia was not going to give up, and we knew that already um, by mm-hmm. the summer of 1941. And uh, you know they weren't going to to be able to um, ultimately prevail there. I mean that that yeah. became pretty well, clear. Well, that's you know again that's that's the perception that we've gained as the result of you know the deaths of 20 million Soviet or uh, Red Army so, uh, f- soldiers and the 
the murder of nearly six million Jews, as well as countless other uh, uh, so-called inferior people in the territories that the that the Nazi forces overran. You know that. Right. Uh, you know so. You know to think that um, that at the time that the Red Army was going to hold out was. Uh, you know that was by no means the common viewpoint uh, from no, but I think Henry was, Stibson. It was actually, you mentioned in your book that, that generally that was the impression of, of several Americans who were on the inside, including Hopkins himself, who was convinced well, that the Hopkins, Soviets would, would is, be able to. You know, this is why this is why Hopkins was so important in this era is because Hopkins, when he went to Moscow and met with Stalin, who presented him. You know, here Stalin and the United States had essentially been already in a Cold War for uh, uh, for decades. Um, right. You know, and no uh, high American official had ever met with uh, with Stalin. You know, here you had Harry Hopkins, the president's alter ego, coming to Moscow, and Stalin telling him, essentially giving him the keys to the kingdom as far as uh, explaining what the the Soviet military capabilities were, where its industrial bases were, what it needed in order to hold out, um, and this was at a point at which the Nazi army was already two hundred was within two hundred miles of Moscow. You know, when Hopkins was there, Moscow was under bombardment. So uh, Hopkins did not go there. Uh, with uh, with the belief that uh, you know the the Soviets would uh, would simply hold out and then reverse the tide, he was going there to understand mm-hmm. whether they where they could possibly stand up against this fierce, fierce, experienced, well equipped German army. And uh, most, as I said, uh, most high U.S. officials did not think they would, and in fact said, "Let's. there is absolutely no reason to aid the Soviet Union, because if we aid them, that equipment's just going to fall into the hands of the Nazis. So uh, what right. Hopkins did was he, he basically uh, got a very, very clear, factually based and empirical viewpoint uh, of the uh, state of the Red Army, uh, and he was able to convince uh, President Roosevelt, uh, against the advice of his military leaders, that in fact, with American aid, the Soviet Union would be able to hold out, and that uh, whether that would be uh, sufficient to turn the tide and actually defeat Hitler uh, was by no means clear at that point. But uh, but. What was clear was that the most important thing for the U.S. national interest, you know, mm-hmm. not, this is not a question of defeating Hitler or not. It was a question of the U.S. national interest that the most important thing for the defense of the United States was that Hitler be preoccupied uh, militarily as long as possible in the Soviet Union. So, right. No, for sure. But, I, but, of course, I think as the war dragged on and as the United States got involved, it was quite clear that the um, the Soviets had turned the tide and uh, had got the upper hand. And I think we, we kind of stayed a little too cozy with them after that because they ended up betraying our values, double-crossing Europe, and uh, 
marching on to a brutal occupation of Eastern Europe, um, not to mention uh, a bunch of other things. So, but yeah, anyway, well, we, could, um, we could debate that. That's a, a whole different ball of wax. Um, yep. Mark Workman, I want to thank you for joining me. It's a very interesting book. I appreciate you writing it. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. How can people get it? Uh, well, they can get it at their local bookseller. They can get it from Amazon or they can go to my website, which is markwortmanbooks.com. It's M-A-R-C-W-O-R-T-M-A-N books, markwortmanbooks.com, and uh, find out more information about me. I've written two previous books, one about uh, aviators in World War I, another about the rise and fall of Atlanta in the Civil War, um, mm-hmm. and uh, find ways to get a hold of 1941, Fighting the Shadow War. Um, it's Thanks available lot, wherever you know, good books are sold. And, and, you know, you're a good war writer, by the way. <laughs> I mean, no, you seem to capture you. The, the, you capture the atmosphere very well. Anyway, thanks oh, so well, much, Mark. I appreciate it. Okay, Chuck. I really appreciate you inviting me on and uh, your listeners for listening in. Thanks a lot. Take care. You too. Right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, so that's uh, Mark Whitman. He's the author of 1941. Uh, my books, of course, are available at Amazon, Amazon Kindle. Put in my name, Chuck Morse, M-O-R-S-E, like Morse code, and they'll come up. And again, I want to thank Mark Workman for joining me. The book is 1941, Battle War, A Divided America in a World at War. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good day. Bobby, you're here again. Yeah, my doctor told me to reduce stress at work, so I come to Buffalo Wild Wings to eat lunch and watch sports. I get to pick one of seven entrees, like sandwiches and salads, plus one of seven sides. Well, I like sides. It's so affordable, I can finally take a vacation. Where are you going to go? Here, Tim, here. Introducing the new B-Dubs Fast Break Lunch Menu, starting at a new low price. Dine-in or order takeout weekdays between 11 and 2. Participation and availability may vary. Buffalo Wild Wings. Wings, beer, sports.